0: Are Locked
1: on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.
0: Well, a immediate reaction pod. Kevin Peltman and I hanging out right after the Warriors' dispatch of the Rockets in a night that... Uh, for moments in time, felt like in, it might be, frankly, uh, one of the more significant kind of individual nights in NBA history. You never know when they really are. Obviously, you go back to the Warriors-Oklahoma City series as last time, but what happened in, with Boston and Milwaukee today feels like it could have long, lingering ramifications, and then Kevin Durant looked like he possibly could have had a career-changing injury there for a second, which felt like it was going to be a career, a series-changing Injury. I had multiple um, texts from people in the league at that moment saying, oh, my gosh, the Warriors run just came to an end and then they pulled off the win. So Kevin Pelton joins me as we try to figure all this out. But let's zero in the first segment here on that Warriors Rockets game. And just your thoughts is that as Durant has what is now being called a calf strain and the Achilles has been ruled out uh, and leaves the game.
1: Yeah, and you know what? It still might be a series and league-changing injury. We'll see. You know how long he's sidelined. Uh, assuming that it is in fact calf strain, and what the Warriors are able to do whether they're able to, you know, summon kind of the same effort that it took to hold off the Rockets here at home and and win this Game Five. I mean, so so my thought at the time I was a little less confident or, or less fearful that it was an Achilles injury than you know kind of the consensus on Twitter because. I think there's uh, a, a saying I, I like uh, to use sometimes. Uh, I think it's a, a medical term. Think uh, horses, not zebras, if you hear hooves, because obviously in the world there are many more horses than there are zebras, and this is kind of a Bayesian principle that you know a calf strain is much more likely than an Achilles injury if you've got an injury that you know could have some. Uh, signs of an Achilles injury, but also could have some signs of a calf injury. Probably, your assumption should be that it's a calf injury, not an Achilles.
0: Yes, though I think we've the the Achilles are the ones we remember, right? And that is the exact script exactly. by which, um, you know that that they happen, and, see, and it was awfully strange. Boy, was it strange! You just didn't see it, and the workload has been tremendous. And there's, you know, I got a text from a guy in the league who sent me a whole piece about. What that strain is, and and how that leads to these injuries, um, with some peroneal tendo big words and all sorts of stuff. I didn't really understand, but um, the workload has been significant on these guys, and it's considerably more significant than they had during the season.
1: Yeah, I mean, this those teams. I I don't think that this is the NBA Finals. I don't think that this will decide the champion because you know I think that. Uh, whoever comes out of the Eastern Conference, you know, can get one of these teams a really good run in the NBA Finals. Uh, I'm not probably as confident in whoever wins the Denver-Portland series being able to do that in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, but teams are treating it like that in terms of the minutes load that the players are playing. And, uh, yeah. Although I will note, you know, we we don't talk about the the number of times where a player plays that many. It doesn't get injured. I think it definitely increases your risk. But you know, sometimes people treat it as well. It's an automatic, you know, injury if you do that. That I think people had that thought about Chris Paul in the minutes he played in last year's conference finals and the fact that he ended up with a hamstring strain. Uh, you're seeing that he's playing similar minutes in this series and has managed to stay healthy. So it, it elevates the risk, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee an injury.
0: I'm not sure he's capable of straining a hamstring anymore.
1: <laughs> it's, all, it's just not, it's like uh, DeJuan Blair's ACL now. It's, yeah. it's just not there anymore. Well, and he just isn't moving. I mean,
0: you know, the numbers bear it out for the season on Chris Paul. I think he finished 80 out of the top hundred guys in isolation play. I mean, he just does not have that ability to get by anyone anymore. Um, in those minutes, uh, when he, he, he's
1: still pretty good, though. I recall yep. a podcast we did in December where one of us was shoveling dirt on Chris Paul. Uh,
0: I shoveled dirt. Hey, I will. I. I mean, we. It, nobody cares about this, but just between Kevin and I, we. I shoveled dirt on the walk to ramen in Portland on the Rockets when he pulled his hamstring and was down. I, th- this revival and their mid-season rebuild of this team is is certainly notable Uh, let's go to the Rockets let's go to that fourth quarter though what do the Warriors do to pull this game off
1: well I mean I think a couple of things first off at the defensive end of the court uh, you were the one that highlighted the, the difficulty Harden has getting the ball back when he gives it up right yes that certainly played out didn't it yes
0: I mean there's a there's a feeling in the league that if you double Harden he does not make the effort to go get the ball back
1: uh, i also thought it was notable you know they're definitely just replaying this possession i think is, uh, as i watched i remember, i guess this is still the uh, first half uh, there was a play a little under the 4 minute mark where you know i noticed that both curry and Iguodala were kind of defending chris paul who was handling uh, above the top of the key almost like it would be a 2-3 you wouldn't a 2-3 zone defense where both guards are up top and I was like, that's weird. Why is that happening? And I didn't realize it's because Harden still had not come into frame. He was still getting into the play from the backcourt, even though you know Houston was setting up a half-court offense. This wasn't like a transition opportunity. So, you know, definitely some elements. I think probably of fatigue there as well.
0: Well, the every other game seems to be impacting Chris Paul, who's went three of fourteen, o of six from three, continues with his postseason three point struggle. And then you're talking to Harden; they really got no help for Harden tonight. Eric Gordon was not particularly good, and Clint Capella, who I am a big fan of, was I know the four, the the line fourteen rebound. I mean, he had a hard time catching tonight. He was plus eight somehow. He to me feels like the guy who gives the Rockets the edge in this series. And he was not good tonight. When they defensive rebound, they're an elite-level team. He did not do that tonight at, a, at the level he could have in, or has in the rest of the series. Um, they're not an elite level. They're unbeatable when they, when they defensive rebound. They did not defensive rebound tonight. Uh, I thought Capella just had a surprisingly bad game, and he is vital to them.
1: I'm not as surprised by it. I mean, this is, you know, he wasn't this ineffective individually in last year's matchup. This is two years in a row that they've been best with P.J. Tucker, et cetera. And I thought one of the interesting strategic things that happened in the fourth quarter is, you know, basically Steve Kerr was out of out of perimeter players after Durant left the game. You know, they gave Alfonso McKinney some run at the start of the quarter, and Livingston ended up coming in after Draymond Green fouled out. But they basically had no choice but to play two bigs, to play Kevon Looney, who was terrific in this game. Alongside Draymond Green, and that kind of forced Houston to go big to match up with it. And I think that was almost an edge in some ways. Like, obviously, you'd rather have Kevin Durant out there, but the fact that they played big might have worked to their benefit.
0: Interesting. And that's when they had the Tuck Wagon uh, lineup on the floor on the other end. PJ Tucker continues to be great, um, just do, making every little play matchable. All right, if Durant is gone for this series which I think is a reasonable expectation. I don't want to like I don't want to re- get Reggie Millard here on Twitter for this comment. We don't know at you know at 15 minutes after the game was over, but it seems it would be surprising if he plays again. The Warriors are really lacking depth. I mean, they have five players who they feel comfortable playing right now if you don't include Sean Livingston, six if you do.
1: Yeah, and I don't know that you should include Sean Livingston. I mean, they're going to have to play him just to get some minutes from the bench. But uh, uh, absolutely, I mean, you know, if you uh, look at the period after Durant went out, which happened with 205 left in the third quarter, so a little over 14 minutes left in the game. After that. Uh Both Clay and Steph played the entirety of that stretch they They did not rest, and you obviously can't do that in a forty eight minute game in game six do If Durant
0: does not play again, do you still have the Warriors as the favorite
1: of this series? I think probably so because of home court advantage in game seven in particular, where it's you know especially pronounced um you know, and what we did see the, the other aspect of it that we didn't talk about. We talked about what they did at the defensive end of the court, but the other aspect of it was, of course, they went back to the pre two thousand and sixteen offense. That you know they've they've generally been very good anytime Durant has been injured uh, over this you know stretch since he's got there. When they reorient things around Steph and Clay and Draymond and you know uh, the, the group that won seventy three games and a title the year before that, and you know I think that if they can get them enough rest and, you know, kind of supplement that group a little bit with, with contributions from the bench that I I would still favor the Warriors because home court advantage is is so important in game seven. And there's a chance they still had game six. I mean, you know, you need to look back only to uh, Houston, San Antonio uh, in in 2000, uh, two years ago in the conference finals where similar situation rockets tied two two. it was a close game five on the road other team star player gets injured, Kawhi Leonard in that case, and then the Rockets still get rolled in Game 6 of that series, one of the more perplexing playoff games in recent memory.
0: The, um, the, the the one, is it as simple as Steph Curry is better when Kevin Durant's off the floor because he
1: just gets the ball more,
0: or... I mean, he the minute Durant goes out of the game, he clicks in.
1: I mean, he's really good when Durant plays. Like, it's not a Ewing theory situation, which it wouldn't be also because of the fact that, you know, the Warriors have won through championships. Like, it's not like they're not successful with Durant. Um, I, I think it's really, you know, just the way everyone gets a chance to be involved when it's a Curry centric offense. It's not the isolation play that you see with Durant, where, you know, it, it's kind of a chicken or egg question. When Durant has these big games, the Warriors often tend to lose, and is that because of the fact that he's just kind of dominating the ball and playing isolation style because of the fact that you know the other Warriors can't get things going against difficult defenses against teams that switch a lot and, and take away a lot of the off-ball movement they have? Or is it because of the fact that he starts isolating that they stop moving and, you know, everything kind of bogs down? But you definitely saw great movement from them at times in the fourth quarter of the night.
0: Well, I mean, what we're really about to find out is whether or not the Warriors should be favored next year for the title.
1: That's part of it, yeah. I mean, you know, they'd, they'd hypothetically have a deeper roster. They'd have some chance to replace Durant and everybody would be another year older. But, yeah, I mean, and that's been one of the kind of fascinating questions is if Durant leaves, you know, how good will this Warriors team be?
0: Well, if the Golden State Warriors need to hire new positions to replace one Kevin Durant, there's only one place they should go to hire, and that is ZipRecruiter. That's right. Okay, you probably can't get NBA players there, but they send the job to over 100 different websites, leading job boards, and they don't stop there. With their powerful matching tools, ZipRecruiter can scan thousands of resumes to find people who are right, have the right experience to invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlights the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. As Locked On continues to grow and grow and grow, ZipRecruiter has been vital for us to continue our job searches, and it's so effective that 80% of all employers... Who post on Zip Recruiters, get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. This has been the experience we've had as well. ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on will let you try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on. I don't know that the Warriors will be able to fill out the rest of their roster or the Celtics, but it is the smartest way to hire. Kevin Pelton of ESPN is with us. Kevin did an interesting piece we'll get to in the third segment today about the Anthony Davis possibilities and what if the Knicks win the lottery, what they should do in that regard. Um, I don't. I I want to move to Bucks uh, Celtics, but is there anything left on that kind of? I mean, it's just such a wild night, and it just finished. Is there anything left out of that night that leaves you uh, that you feel like we got to jump on before we move past Warriors Rockets?
1: Well, you mentioned it that uh, you know in the fourth quarter, right after Durant went out, that it suddenly loomed that this could be the last game ever at Oracle, and and that possibility being out the window is, is uh, notable. The the fact that they're guaranteed at least a game seven or or to advance, it, uh, as well as the fact that this is just kind of like I think this is going to go down as a special night in the Warriors' championship run. They've they've had you know maybe more important games, but just kind of the what this signified about their ability to. Dig down and and dig down deep and win when the situation was against them. Uh, really impressive.
0: Which has really been a little bit of more of a signature of their championship runs, and I think gets credit in in the sense that they've always been the best team, and they've been so loaded. They were historically great when they when they clicked in under Steve Curry even before Durant got there. And so I think there's been this kind of well, of course they're going to win the title, and then they win the title, and we forget. Of all the moments along the way, the 15-point deficit last year in Game 7, I think it was a a significant deficit in Game 6 last year. Um, The 3-1 deficit against Oklahoma City, It's, it's really a testament to how incredibly hard and how great you really have to be to win a title is what these guys have gone through.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the other aspect of it is sometimes they kind of do it to themselves by not playing hard until they really need to. I don't think that's happening in this series. They've taken the Rockets seriously the whole time. And it's just testament, I think, to, you know, A, the the toll that, you know, the last couple of years have taken on their depth and and then the cumulative effect of playing so many minutes. And then also a testament to, to how well the Rockets have played. But, you know, one thought I had, I think this might have even been before the Durant injury when, when the Rockets came from behind to take the lead in the third quarter. Like, you know, if they win this game and Houston wins this series, like it's going to seem obvious in hindsight that golden state was set up to lose. Like all the signs were there uh, in terms of them kind of slowing down, but there's also all these situations that we don't remember where the signs were there and the team just still won anyway. And the, the example I thought of was uh, the 98 bulls, I guess a painful one for uh, chess fans uh, to, to bring this one up. But you know, like a team that also was kind of on fumes at the end of its championship run extended, I think to seven against Indiana in the conference finals, had that Scottie Pippen injury all year, but they won. So we don't remember all that. We just remember the Michael Jordan shot.
0: I mean, Scottie Pippen's in the locker room. Michael Jordan takes that shot with a back injury that has him questionable for game seven.
1: I didn't remember that. See, there
0: you go. That's, that's, that's my memory of that. Well, I think that's true. It's a long time ago. Um, I, there's so much to talk about in regards to Celtics, but I want to go with the Bucs first. They were the best team in the NBA all year by a large margin. They were actually kind of, they really were almost the first year Warriors where this team that put together for portion significant portions of the season were the number one offense and the number one defense, which has done been done very rarely um, in the league. Uh, they were really dominant this year. I mean, I think they finished as the number 3 offense and number 2 defense. You go in the history of the game and find teams that have done that, they go to the finals and they looked every bit that great in this series. after game 1.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm sure I wasn't the first person to write this, but I think I was in maybe the uh, you know, the, the first 10% to to draw the comparison between this year's Bucks and, and those Warriors coming off a of coaching change in both cases and just, you know, going from uh, a, a playoff team, but a non-contender to all of a sudden Supernova. And, you know, the thing that in particular reminded me of is that in January of that 2014-15 that season, I wrote a piece about, you know, the, the talk at that time, believe it or not, was that the Western Conference is wide open, that it could be Portland before the Wesley Matthews injury. Uh, there was a lot of Memphis talk at that point. Uh, That was the year I think they ended up facing Houston in the conference finals, the Clippers who hadn't broken through. And then here were the Warriors just running off all these wins and putting up a historic point differential. But still all all anyone could talk about was how wide open the conference was because San Antonio, who had won the two previous years, uh, was down that season. So, you know, I think very similar in terms of, you know, those two teams, how good they were was kind of hiding in plain sight. But at the same time, you know, it was right to kind of wonder a little bit how were the Bucks going to translate to the postseason? Uh, Mike Budenholzer does not have a great track record in the playoffs in terms of you know uh, making adjustments when when the plan A isn't working, which it did all regular season long for the the Bucks. And we haven't just seen this group ever win a playoff series. So they, they've, they without question, proved something.
0: And inside the NBA circles that I circle around, which has multiple teams kind of tentacles into multiple teams, the question after game one was, can Giannis adapt? I mean, that was what people in the league were asking. Like, I'm curious to watch this series to see whether Giannis has enough to his game to adapt. And I think... He either proved that he could adapt or that he could will his way through what they were doing to him defensively.
1: <laughs> yeah, it might have been the latter. Uh, you yeah, know, I think that some of it also was what the Bucks did, with, because Bud did prove that he could make adjustments both defensively. when they, they started switching more picks in a way that they had not all regular season. And then also, I think putting uh, Nikola Mirotic in the starting lineup and giving giving more shooting around Giannis was a factor there, but ultimately it was mostly about the fact that I I, I do think, you know, it was a combination of adjusting and yeah, just sheer will and, and getting to the free throw line in the basket time and time again over the last four games of the series.
0: Giannis's will is pretty awesome right now. Like his it was a great article in the New York Times about back about I think it was New York Times back about uh the coach that first found him and saw him and, and brought him to practice when he had absolutely no game at all, and the coach and the, his fellow players' reaction to him in Greece was, okay, this guy has no idea how to play, but, man, does he play hard and with a demand to win um, without any idea of what he's doing, and that seems to be the signature that's
1: carried him through all of this. That's a, that's a pretty good reputation to have.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't mind it. Uh, statistically, is there anything going on with three point shooting in playoffs or three point shooting? I mean, the Boston goes seven of thirty nine. We had the huge misses last year um, against by the Rockets against the uh, against the Warriors. Um, I saw a lot of three point misses in the playoffs this year. Is there anything to three point shooting being less good in the playoffs or being? um, particularly bad on given nights?
1: Uh, you know, I haven't looked specifically at this year's playoffs. I I do think that there is a tendency for, you know, two point percentage overall in the playoffs so far, it's, you know, a hair below 35. It was a hair above 35 during the regular season. So not a substantial difference, but, uh, I guess so down from thirty-five point five to thirty-four point six. But uh, you know, one thing you do see in the in the data, and I haven't looked real close into this, but uh, shooting percentage three-point percentages go down over the course of the game, which seems to speak to fatigue. Uh, because you know, if you look at the second spectrum data we have access to on ESPN, uh, the, the quality of the shots is not any worse necessarily, or, or can't explain the drop in it, at least. So it's not a case of teams are closing out better and are more diligent defensively in the fourth quarter. It's similar shots aren't going in as frequently, which does seem to speak to fatigue that you would see then in the playoffs.
0: Guys are playing more minutes. Uh, also, maybe, you know, some of those, it's a little tighter, a little tougher shots to make in the playoffs than they are in the regular season.
1: Yeah, and you see it sometimes where the, the player doesn't get many easy opportunities. And then when you do get that one easy look, you're like trying so hard to make it that it almost becomes more difficult in this sense. Uh, You know, there there was some calculations after the Rockets missed those 27 consecutive threes against the Warriors in game seven last year, the conference finals of, you know, what are the odds of this happening? But the issue there is they kind of presupposed to that. Those are all independent events and that, you know, the, I think they were going by the three-point percentage players shot during the regular season or possibly their career marks. And I'm not sure those are necessarily representative in that situation.
0: The other one I would say, just, and I have not looked at this, I'm just uh, guessing, is I suspect that the best the playoff teams are all good three-point shooting, mostly good three-point shooting teams. So for the league average to be down a percentage point is maybe bigger than it would be if all the 30 teams in the league are shooting. Um, I could be wrong on that, but the, the top three, four of the top five, five of the top six, six of the top seven, seven of the top eight, eight of the top nine are all three-point percentage teams were are all playoff teams. Um, this year. So I think I'm probably right on that, just on a quick scan that the league average of the playoff teams is probably closer to 30 you know, what, 7% in league average you said was 35.6 or something of that nature. I'll bet you the league average playoff team is about 36-something and so maybe they're down 2 percentage points than what they regularly shoot, which probably gets more significant. Yep. Um, And also the best teams defending three-point shots are also in the playoffs. Um, That three-point shot does matter how you handle it on um, both ends uh, of things. Uh, Much to your dismay, um, I pointed out, found, you know, you search (laughs) NBA predictions and ESPN comes up. It's too bad to be the leader. Um, So, um, you know, you go back and look, and there's whatever, 20-some-odd ESPN experts, and every single one of them picked the Celtics to go to the Eastern Conference Finals. They were were the number one pick in everybody's conference rankings for most of the season. A few teams, like including yourself, had Toronto beating them in the um, in the conference finals, so not everybody, but a, a large amount um, and a pretty significant. How, how stunning to you, and then we'll dig into the ramifications of it next, how stunning to you Boston's season this year, where they, you know, frankly were a hot mess for the whole year, and then, just, they re- really, that was not a close series. That was a, just bona fide ass-kicking.
1: It was, but at the same time, the Bucks were down at home, you know, the first half of Game 2, and... Uh, Is it, it, someone who picked the Bucks in the series. I was I was pretty concerned about how that pick was going to look. And someone who tweeted after Game One that you know I thought the chances of winning the series were pretty good. So that that was probably where more where my uh, my credibility was on the line than uh, what I picked for the Conference Finals back in October. Um, I so I I think a couple of things come into play here. Number one. You know, when we were looking at the Eastern Conference back in October, we were kind of thinking of it as a two-team conference that Toronto and Boston were way ahead of anyone else. Milwaukee hadn't yet shown us that they could be this kind of team, although there were there were some indications in the preseason. I started to, uh, you know, creep them up a little bit in my my projections. I think I. You know, the subjective picks I did, I think I ended up having them in fourth, but maybe they were fifth behind Indiana, which is a little higher than they would have been based strictly on the numbers. Uh, and then the other thing that happened, of course, is that Philly made trades for, you know, both Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris midseason and uh, really accelerated the timetable on their contention. So, you know, the top of the conference ended up being a lot stronger than we expected. Um, I, w- I went and looked at this because I was curious about it after, you know, kind of that discussion. Uh, the RPM projections that we do on on ESPN using uh, real plus minus or on a player metric that incorporates both plus minus data and box score stats. Uh, if you looked at the actual minutes that the uh, you know Celtics players ended up playing this season, it projected a net rating for them of plus five point four points per hundred possessions, offense minus defense. Their actual net rating ended up plus five point two. <laughs> now. That that project, translated to a projection of 54 wins, and they only actually only won 49 because of the fact that their record in close games wasn't particularly good. But I think there were a few factors here that, you know, kind of the Celtics looked worse than they really were. But also the expectations were not that they were going to be a plus 5.4 net rating 54-win team. It was that they were going to be a you know a 60-plus win team because everyone looked at it and said, hey, this is a team that got within a game of the conference finals and is adding Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward. Well, number one, Gordon Hayward wasn't Gordon Hayward for most of the season. And then number two, you know the, the young players who helped lead them within a game of the conference finals last year, Terry Rozier, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, those guys were all playing a little bit, I think, above, uh, you know, over their heads in that that conference finals run. Uh, if you uh, it took that exact same group and asked them to play out the regular season, you know, I think that's maybe a that's maybe a forty five, maybe a forty eight win group. Uh, but people were thinking of it as like, oh, it's like a fifty plus win group. And we add Kyrie and Gordon Hayward to them, and that's how we get to sixty wins. So I think, and and that expectation, you know, it didn't just exist externally in the minds of the media and fans it also presumably existed in the minds of the Celtics. And I think that's, you know, probably the source of a lot of their angst over the course of the season. It's not necessarily that the bad chemistry led to them not being as good as we thought. It's that the fact that the expectations were so high and they didn't live up to them, that I think often causes the unhappiness.
0: That was the item I was going to add in there. I think that's the key. I mean, I've never seen a team freak out after one or two losses like they did. Yeah. Um, Right, I mean, they they throughout the entire year they just imploded. At moments, it made no sense. Was my takeaway.
1: And maybe if you had better leadership, yeah, you would be able to withstand some of those rocky moments and and stay together. And you know, clearly they they did not have that.
0: Does is Kyrie viewed differently after a series where he shoots thirty six percent and twenty two percent from three?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we shouldn't overreact to it because it's five games, and the fact that they're five important games doesn't necessarily make them more predicted going forward. But at the same time, you know, if you were making the case for Kyrie, a lot of it was based on his ability to, you know, be a shot maker and to be better in the playoffs than he was in the regular season. You know, this is particularly true in Cleveland, where he was so bad defensively during the regular season that you know it was really the only case you could make for Kyrie's value was by focusing on what he was able to do in the playoffs and, you know, in the uh, the 2016 NBA Finals in particular. So to have a series where he wasn't able to get close to that level, it definitely tarnishes it a little bit. Let's go back to the
0: let's go back to the core issue with boston because i i think that you, you touched on it but i i want a more definitive thesis statement here was boston a collection of too much talent or was boston's talent not as good as we thought it was
1: so i tend to think it's more the latter i i know i i know we disagree on this why don't you make the case for uh, the the too much talent act well i
0: think i think it was too many because i don't know i actually it's interesting you say that because i think you know what i'm saying so I do a thing at the beginning of the year where I count every team's possessions if everyone got their average. And this year in Boston, I talked about it all year long, each guy was going to have to sacrifice 15% or 20%, somewhere between 15 and 20% of their possessions. Like, they weren't going to do it. Right? Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who have not gotten paid yet, are not giving up 15 to 20% of their possessions. And the the talk in Boston was, well, Al Horford will be willing to sacrifice. Like, it wasn't possible for Al Horford to sacrifice enough. Everybody on that roster was going to have to sacrifice 15 or 20% of their possessions to be able to get down to the enough possessions for a given game. Any team that has had that number, there I probably should go do this research and find a way to to really do it because I've flagged a bunch of teams over the last few years and whenever this number comes up it's a problem. It's interesting that the team that actually has only, you know, 72 possessions like the Clippers this year and the Jazz of 2 years ago Somehow figure out how to use that extra 24 possessions with no problem get up to the 90, 95 possessions that they need to have in a given night to be able to be good enough. Whereas the team that has 120 or 125 or even the 130 that Minnesota had a few years ago when they added Jeff Teague and Andrew Wiggins and Jimmy Butler and Carl Anthony Downs and Taj Gibson, who surprisingly uses more than you think, and Gorgie Zhang, who uses more than you think, they eventually imploded. So I do think there's that. I think they had too many possessions, but I actually think that they had too many possessions from guys that aren't as good as people think.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I guess that's a real problem because you know I brought up well, what about the the 2016 17 Warriors when they added Durant uh, in place of Harrison Barnes, who obviously had a much lower usage rate? And uh, you noted that you thought that because of the fact that they're role players, thought that Patchouli also came in that year. They they signed uh, you know a bunch of minimum guys. Uh, he wasn't as high in number as you'd think, but, you know, that's, that's the ki I think the key difference there is uh, that, you know, the, the Warriors kind of chose this. The Durant chose it, obviously, even though it hasn't necessarily maybe provided the fulfillment that he hoped. Uh, and then the Warriors, other starters, like they were there pitching him in the Hampton. That's where we got the Hamptons Five nickname. So, you know, they chose it as opposed to this was kind of foisted upon Boston because, you know, the expectation wasn't good, you know, that Terry Rozier and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum were going to be such a big part of the offense until they had to go out and do it. Well, Kyrie and and Hayward were injured last last season in the playoffs.
0: But it's worth noting, if you look at the Warriors over the years, like Clay Thompson has never changed his possession usage. Like it's just the same like they've been able to do this largely with most of these guys using the same amount of possessions um which is you know which is interesting that you know i think durant and curry are down a tiny bit but not not a great um not a great not a, you know nothing catastrophic um what do you think the Celtics are next year what's your guess
1: well, I mean, you know, I think like everyone else, I expect Kyrie to leave as a free agent. Uh, I hadn't really thought about until, you know, I was listening to uh, Bill Simmons and he brought up the idea that Horford also opts out uh declines his player option. And that would give the Celtics actually some cap space if they moved on from Horford to, you know, kind of build around a young core of, of Tatum and, and Brown and, you know, presumably re-sign Rozier as a restricted free agent. in that point I'd be, Interesting, but you know, boy, it's, it's far from the, you know, kind of surefire championship contender that we'd expect them to be if Kyrie return.
0: And you wrote a piece today on, um, Anthony Davis and whether the Knicks should trade for, him if they get the number one pick, what was your, what was your takeaway?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because as I wrote the piece, I changed my conclusion. Like, I started to write one thing and then I went the other direction. So, you know, I think it is an interesting question because, on the one hand, you know, let's say, I mean, this is only if they do, you know, sign a couple of max free agents, if it is Durant and Kyrie, uh, then, you know, there is an impetus to try to win now. Durant is 31. He just had his NBA mortality kind of flash uh, before his eyes during during this game. And, Uh, or he will be 31, I should say, before the start of training camp. So there's probably some urgency for them to try to win now in a way that Anthony Davis is much more equipped to help them do than Zion Williamson would be as a rookie. At the same time, you'd be sacrificing a lot of financial flexibility, uh, giving, you know, uh, you'd have to trade pretty much all, not, not necessarily all your other young players, but you'd only be able to keep a couple of guys from that group, of the Mitchell Robinson uh, Kevin Knox, Frank Ntilikina, and Davis Smith Jr., and you'd almost certainly go into the luxury tax in the summer of 2020 after you resign Anthony Davis, and you know the, the the that roster would be incredibly thin and, and top heavy. So you know that's where I kind of reached the conclusion that you probably would be best off keeping Zion. Uh,
0: by the way, I would like to thank you for not using the language of Steve Kerr tonight on our podcast or Terry Rozier with the quote of the night. Leaving Boston, I don't give a beep what nobody say. I sacrifice the most of anyone. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that that might tell you Uh, all you need to know about the Celtics.
1: Can I give you one other thought? This has been—you know—everyone talks about the uh, the the season of unhappiness in the NBA. To me, it's really the season of the problems of expectations. Like, you look at all the teams that are happy around the league, like Denver, the Clippers, you know, Portland, I think, falls into this category, Milwaukee. Like, they're all teams that came into the season with relatively low expectations. And the teams that everyone expected to compete for the championship the Warriors, the Celtics, you know, maybe not the Raptors. They've had a relatively placid season for a contender. I mean, Houston had, you know, whatever they went through in December, even though it didn't seem to crack the team's chemistry. Like, yeah, you know, the, the the takeaway here is, you know, that uh, it's happiness is kind of a function of results minus expectations, and the higher your expectations are, the more difficult it's going to be to find happiness.
0: I'm going to give you a much simpler one. Okay. Don't take away possessions from young players who have not established their value in the league.
1: I feel like that's less simple. I feel like that's, that's not as general as my takeaway. But yeah,
0: Lakers, Seventy Sixers, Celtics. All of them, right? I mean, the body language yeah. in Philadelphia is brutal. Oh, my gosh. The the shot the other night of when Joel Embiid, who is whatever he is, if he's sick or whatever the act is this week, um, goes to the bench.
1: I'm, I'm not endorsing that take for the record.
0: Right. I mean, I just don't know. You know, it's, there's always something, right? Like, fine, he's sick. Like, he's sick, I guess. Right, I just feel like, you know, it was the knee the week before where he doesn't tell his team until two minutes before games of whether he's going to play or not. Like, I'm tired of it. But his teammates are tired of it, too. Like, you can see it. Like if he's re- Like, he sat down on the bench. Not one guy tapped him on the back. Not one guy leaned into him. Like, you could just see it. They're tired of it.
1: Like, yeah, and you said that. And going into the fourth quarter of Game 4, it looked like they were going to take a commanding 3-1 lead in that series. Right, I mean, they're... So, these, I, margins, margin, these margins are razor thin.
0: No, and I, I have said, I think they're so... I mean, they have the best five-man lineup in the league right now.
1: They do. You know,
0: don't necessarily have a lot outside of that, although,
1: uh, you know, they've gotten some good minutes in this series from uh, James Ennis. And Embiid's unbelievable.
0: Like, for him, I mean, the numbers with him on the floor, he probably should win every award there is. Right. I mean, his plus-minus, his impact, he's got to be real plus-minus best player in the league, isn't he?
1: Uh, not over the course of the season. He's been really strong in that regard in the playoffs. I mean, this series is kind of weird to evaluate in plus-minus because of the fact that there's so often that Philadelphia has all five starters out there against two starters for Toronto and vice versa because of prep rounds rotations. Uh, so that's kind of exacerbated in this series.
0: I mean, his talent level is just remarkable. What do you expect to see tomorrow in those two? Or to not today, when people are listening to this,
1: yeah, Dan Feldman of NBCSports.com had an interesting post after those game fives that uh, I believe it was nineteen points was the cutoff that was the most that a team had lost a game five by to go down three two and still ended up even winning game six, let alone you know the series. So, oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that surprised me because oftentimes, like the other stat that Dan had that was on top of was after that game one, uh, Boston winning Milwaukee that you looked at. I think it was the last four teams that had won game one on the road by 15 plus points had all lost the series.
0: Yeah, that was great. So, you know, five that five was years. amazing. So now it's eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was amazing. And, you know, it's so interesting. Sometimes- it's interesting how differently I felt about those two game fives. I thought, Denver, I thought Denver would blow Portland out. I just kind of felt like Portland was running on fumes and emotional dimes, and they're shorthanded, and they just were running on fumes. I thought Philadelphia was going to give Toronto a run for the money, and I thought Philadelphia might actually win that game.
1: I, I thought both those teams would. I mean, you know, people asked me, in the I was having conversations about it with people in the media room after Game 4 down in Portland, and, you know, my takeaway was, all right, these two teams have played eight times this season. All of them have been decided by single digits. Sometimes one team is going to make plays down the end, and that was Portland in game three, and sometimes the other team is going to, and that was you know, Denver getting a couple of Will Barton threes in game four. So I, I expected more of the same. It, it did feel substantially like Denver kind of figured, figured Portland out in game five. So it'll be interesting to see if that does, in fact, carry over.
0: And what was your take on what you thought happened in Toronto, Philadelphia, and how that impacts game six?
1: I think Toronto has been outplaying Philadelphia for the, the duration of the series, and sometimes their shots haven't been going in.
0: Oh, there it is. You got famous for that somewhere a long time ago. A Houston-San Antonio game? Was it? What was the one? Um, what was it that got you famous on that one? Everyone was freaking out. You wrote the article that
1: it was pure yeah, luck. Well, it might have been Houston-San Antonio, Yeah, because that was the, the second round series that we talked about earlier that yeah, that was one of those games where the road team came in and won by 15 plus points and uh you know, it's it's easy to overreact to that. And the the one thing I hope is like let's just please everyone remember this year with the, the Bucks again, the, the obituary was being written after game 1 and they ended up winning the series 4-1. Like there's a lesson here. Let's remember this. Our memories are so short in the playoffs. Um
0: Yes, that is all fair. Um, I don't know how to add on to that or or not. Um, I I you know I think that's the case also when if the Warriors hold on to win this series and we'll talk about this dominant run they had and how difficult it was. Um, you know how 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 difficult it was along the way. I think will be forgotten.
1: Except in two thousand seventeen, it was not difficult in two thousand seventeen.
0: No, um, and the finals aren't weren't difficult in two thousand. Eighteen, and so therefore, it's hard to forget there was anything difficult along the way. Right. All right, my man. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. He is Kevin Pelton, Catch Money ESPN. Follow him on Twitter at k pelton. What else you got for me? Anything else? Uh, that's about it. All right. That is the great Kevin Pelton. Have a good one. Locked on NBA. Net on Twitter and on Instagram for you, everybody.